Welcome everyone and thank you for joining us. My name is Akshay Mola and I'm a Senior Business Development Specialist at SAP S4HANA Solution Management and Go-To-Market. And you're listening to SAP Experts Podcast. Today's episode with Dr. Barry Fishman is all about gamified approaches to business consulting in which one creates compelling customer engagements. But before we jump in, please consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends and colleagues. And of course, I absolutely love feedback, so please leave a comment. And with that, I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Barry Fishman. He's a professor of learning technologies in the University of Michigan School of Information and School of Education. His current research focuses on video games as models for learning environments, the design of mastery and competency-based programs in higher education, and the development of usable, scalable, and sustainable learning innovations through design-based implementation research, which he helped establish. He is also the co-creator of Gradecraft, a game-inspired learning management system. He also has many accolades to his name, such as in 2018, he was named a fellow of the International Society of the Learning Sciences, and in 2017, he was named Distinguished Professor of the Year by Michigan Association of State Universities. So, when it comes to gamification, gamified approaches, gameful learning, it is safe to say Dr. Fishman definitely knows what he's talking about. Welcome, Barry. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you. It's really uh, my pleasure to join you. And like I was talking in the introduction, Barry, you have a plethora of research experience when it comes to gamified approaches for learning, for gameful learning. So what are some of the trends you have observed over the years and how have things changed? Well, absolutely. There's been growing interest, very steadily growing interest in the use of games to inspire engagement of various kinds. That's what got me into this work to begin with was an interest in what gets learners in particular, but you could also think of customers or employees or client, I mean, really anybody to engage with a challenging activity and to persist through that activity and see it through to its conclusion. I would have said it's success, but part of what we're trying to foster here is also resilience. So sometimes it's not always success, but you hope people keep going and they keep trying and they do new things. And it, it turns out that games are just great at this. This is what this is what games naturally foster. So what I've been observing over the past, well, I've been engaged in this work for more than a decade personally, but it does go a very long way back, is uh, business, education, a range of sectors, uh, public health, thinking of ways to use things like games to uh, engage the people that they want to engage with. In fact, in one of my courses, uh, I was uh, I, I give my students a lot of choices in what, what they want to focus on. One of my students who was training to be a public librarian wanted to focus on the reading game. Uh, oh, wow. The summer reading game, which you may recall, many of your audience members may have participated in the summer reading game at their local library. I did too. That was a good reminder to me that these approaches have been used uh, since I was a child, um, you know, 40 plus years ago, <laughs> um, 50 plus years ago, and and longer. So the, nothing here is that new, uh, but it is a, it's a good thing to remind ourselves periodically as we think about how to really get people engaged with what we want them to engage with. 
Definitely. And you are saying that, you know, there is nothing new here. But one of the curveballs that happened in 2020 was COVID. So how has that changed uh, the game, the trends of Gameful Learning? Are we seeing more of an uptick? Or on the other hand, since we are not face to face, are we seeing more challenges when it comes well, to gamified approaches? I, I I'm unable to say whether we've seen an increase in, in gamification or gamified approaches, and we, we'll expand on what, what we're talking about when we talk about those uh, in a moment, I hope. Um, what I've seen is a greater need to help people be engaged, because when we went remote, uh, it, we started to lose our motivation uh, in a lot of ways, or at least our motivation shifted which is another thing we'll come back to. People are always motivated in some way, <laughs> just not to do what you want them to do. Uh, and especially when we're dealing, I think there's differences when we're dealing with um, customers or clients who are generally, um, they come to us because they wanna have us help them solve a problem. So they have a different kind of starting motivation. But in my world where I'm working a lot with college students and, uh, and K-12 students, the motivation has changed because not a lot of those students are in school for the love of learning. They're in school because they have to be. And we hope they develop a love of learning, but moving remote really posed a lot of challenges for that. So I, a long-winded answer. Sorry, I'm a professor occupational hazard. Um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think the way we're approaching the world uh, from the design side has changed maybe enough. Really, my, my career's work is to encourage more people to use these approaches and to use them well, but the need for it has certainly increased. Hmm. Wow. And uh, on that note, you know, you mentioned that we should go and expand more into what is gamification? What is gameful learning? What, what's the difference between these words? So share with us. So gamification is the term that most of your listeners are probably familiar with, and it's the most commonly used term for describing the use of game-like elements in non-game settings uh, in order to create engagement, to create motivation, often what in psychology we call extrinsic motivation. So to use rewards uh, most frequently, uh, sometimes to use punishments, but that's not really part of the way we often use gamification in, in a learning or business setting, but to encourage people uh, using game-like features like points or badges or stars uh, to unlock levels of uh, participation. You, the, the, the canonical example is the airline frequent flyer program. Oh, wow. They're, they really are gamification models designed to get you, the flyer, to behave in a certain way, which is to repeatedly choose the airline that you are, uh, you are engaged with already through the game. Um, and I, I know myself, you know, when I'm faced with a choice of multiple airlines, uh, I'll almost always pick the one where I have the most points because that's the game that I'm I'm most engaged with with the airline. It doesn't really change the nature of flying. Uh, it changes um, my engagement patterns in a way that complies with what the airline wants me to do. So one way to think about simple gamification is that it's uh, it's about in enticing people um, to do the things you want them to do. And, and I call it simple gamification because I do believe there's a more meaningful way to engage in gamification, which is to actually redesign the activity to be aligned with what uh, a really well-designed game encourages. And through that realignment, you, uh, you create deeper or more meaningful engagement. Uh, so that would be changing to help create an environment where, uh, where the learners, where the participants, where the customers, 
are doing the things that they want to do, or rather they're coming to really want to do the things that we share as common goals. So there's that's gamification. And I, I just gave two a definition of it is sort of simple but gamification. Some people may call that shallow or behavioral gamification or mm. deeper or more meaningful gamification where we're really trying to create an environment of in, more intrinsic uh, motivation. And that uh, is sometimes referred to and what I refer to as gameful learning or gameful design. And then there are other elements to think about too. So sometimes we actually wanna have people play a literal game that is what I would call game-based learning. And it certainly shares many of the same elements as gamification because it's a game, right? We're talking about games and, and how games relate to each other. Wow, wow. Uh, when you said airline points and even things like hotel points and all those loyalty programs are kind of a game, you just blew my mind. Now I would look at those things very, very differently. And on that very note, you know, uh, when I brought up COVID earlier, that was because at SAP, we are also feeling the impact of uh, the video meeting, virtual meeting fatigue, and so are our customers, right? And as a result, we came up with what we call the S4 HANA virtual board game. And it is used not only as an engaging approach to solution consulting, but also to place the customer in the driving seat. So I think what you were talking a little bit about intrinsic motiva motivation, uh, the customers still have their KPIs, they are in a virtual environment, the business still has to go on. So that's why we created this um, game in which they are on the driving seat and we are simply the game curators. And in my experience, business consulting is at least partly, I would say, more than partly educating the client. So what are your thoughts of using gamification as a tool in business consulting? Well, and again, the the the, the environment you described, I would put in that third category of things that I was talking about, which is more than gamification, it's literally game-based learning. And in particular, uh, I've you, I've looked at some examples of the game you're describing on YouTube. It's a really, it's a simulation game, right? So it's a way to help the, the the client, the player of the game, experience uh, a, a taste of the kinds of interactions that you expect them to have uh, when they're doing this in the real world. So it's a great way to uh, give people exp engaging experiences that are, uh, like I said, simulations of the real world way that they'll be thinking about this. So a, a long history, the use of games and simulations, um, the, they're extremely effective for training. They're extremely effective for education because they, uh, in the closer we can, so education itself is always a kind of um, shadow using sort of the Plato's cave metaphor, right? It's like a shadow of the world. We, we're trying to educate people about the real world uh, so they can operate in the real world. And we kind of boil down the world in various ways and represent it to the learners. Um, so a simulation, is a little bit closer to the real world. And in fact, I would say in general, in education, the closest we get to actual practice, to the actual experience, the better. That's why historically, and I'm talking through long history, thousands of years, the most effective form of learning has always been apprenticeship. And mm. if you think of it, apprenticeship is, is, you know, is, is participation in the real activities of uh, a workplace or a culture or uh, or a society, um, so it's it's not simulation. It's but it's safe participation, and 
you can think of a simulation as a, a kind of safe participation, uh, a little bit less removed than if you had just presented a list of bullet points that you want the client to think about. And then they have to make the connection between those and what they're interested in. We do have the advantage in most consulting and business work that when the clients come to us, they're already interested in finding a solution to the problem. So they know what the problem is. That, in fact, is one of the principles of meaningful learning, of meaningful gamification, is that my first principle is you need clear learning goals. The, the learner should know why they're there and what they're getting out of it. Um, and um, that's often ill-defined in a lot of situations. Absolutely. And like you said, uh, what you described was grabbing the content, grab, grabbing the gameplay from what is relevant to the player. So for instance, within the S4 HANA board game, we uh, try to play, or rather the gameplay is the real goals, the real challenges of the customer, and of course, the real business capabilities that S4 HANA offers them. Um, so you went over the importance of uh, creating gameplay out of real content, something that the uh, player can relate to, which is very much true to their needs, uh, true to their world. However, sometimes there is, when it comes to such innovative approaches, there's a little bit of a push and pull to make things fun, quote unquote, uh, just to add those fun elements, perhaps add some fireworks, some laser shooting, maybe a wheel of fortune. So where is the balance? I'm chuckling at myself because if you were to check in with my students or, you know, God forbid, with my children, uh, they would not emphasize fun as a part of what I do. Um, that's not my goal. Um, my goal is engagement. So mm. I think, you know, when this is a, a place that a game-based approach often goes off the rails is we add these, um, these sort of irrelevant flourishes. Uh, now, when they're relevant, when it's like we've we have an accomplishment and there's a little celebration, that's I'm not saying not to have celebratory moments or things like that's certainly important. Um, but we often mistake the what we think is fun with what we really want, which is engagement. So the example I often use is high level athletes. So if you were to stop any athlete in the middle of a competition and ask them, hey, are you having fun? Right. They would look at you like you were off your rocker. What are you talking about? You know, this is a struggle. I'm at war here. You know, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Oh, do you want to stop? Again, are you are you off your rocker? I mean, no, this is what I'm here to do. I'm super into this. Don't get out of my way. Get off the field. So you what we want is that deep level of engagement with the activity such that even when it feels difficult, we would not in a million years want to stop. We want to keep going. And there's there's way this is how a well-designed game works is you believe that it's possible for you to succeed. Uh, again, this is another principle in gameful learning. It comes from a psychological motivation theory called self-determination theory. A support for competence means that you believe that you have the tools and resources and support to eventually succeed, right? If you don't believe that, well, why why would you keep going? Right. If you think the deck is stacked, there's no way I can win. I don't know what I'm doing here. You know, that's the, the opposite of feeling competence or feeling support for competence. And so you're more likely to quit. So and by the way, you know, if we're if we're reflecting on what makes for a well-designed learning environment, um, you know, we I think a lot of times in in school based situations, which is one of the more challenging situations for motivation, the learner feels that lack of support for competence. Right. 
learned helplessness is an example of this. Like, I, I can't do this math. I'm, I'll never be as good at this as other people around me or uh, people that grade on the curve. Well, I'll never be the smartest person in the class, right? So these are these are challenging situations for designing motivation. My solution is redesign the environment to be a better game. Uh, in business, it's a different situation. Um, although our clients may be feeling the same kind of struggles. Well, how will I ever be able to resolve this what feels like a mountain of a challenge, right? It's such a complicated space. How will I ever make progress in it? And one of the things you're doing with your simulation game is to start to simplify that space, right? To help them see what to focus on and to provide the kind of support that gives them a sense of, oh, I bet I could actually do this. And once once the, the learner or the client says, I think I can do this, then you're on the path to success. Absolutely. And uh, on that very note, I mean, what I love about the S4HANA game is that it is based off of a Monopoly board. And I think the last time we spoke, Barry, you were mentioning how Monopoly itself was created as a tool to educate people into how to budget and how to use their funds, right? And it, the event, the original name of Monopoly was the Landlord's Game, uh, mm. but it was actually a game um, to teach the, the communities who were renters about how landlords were trying to take advantage of them. Um, it was sort of a protest game originally. Um, the the goal of getting all the money became let's call that the sort of the, the Gordon Gecko turn uh, in the <laughs> game's history. Um, but it's got you know it's it it was it was designed as a kind of simulation experience to help make people aware of the of how rents and landlord were the landlord uh, landlording world worked from the percent uh, so that a renter could be more informed about it. So. Earlier, uh, right in the beginning of our conversation, Barry, today, you mentioned that everybody is motivated, but perhaps not how you want them to be motivated. And on that note, some of the skepticism we hear around use of games for business consulting is that why would adults care? Why would they want to be playing games when they clearly have KPIs to fulfill? So with that in mind, uh, during uh, your EDX course, which is how I came to know of you, you had mentioned a story of a sleepy, chubby squirrel and what the squirrel had to teach us about motivation. So why don't you share that with our listeners today? A absolutely. Well, I, I live in Michigan and uh, the squirrels here are quite active and quite plump. And one day in the middle of the summer, uh, in August, it was very warm. And I looked on my back porch and saw sitting on the railing one of these very well-fed squirrels, spread out, spread eagle, you know, all four paws spread to the four compass corners as flat as the squirrel could get. And I thought, oh, um, this is a great example of, uh, of a, an extremely motivated squirrel, which is counterintuitive because when you hear about this squirrel lying as still and flat as it could be, uh, when I, I show this slide and I ask, I ask learners multiple choice, um, is this squirrel motivated or not? And almost everyone in the in the room will say that squirrel is extremely unmotivated. But the true answer is the squirrel is very motivated to keep cool. So what it's trying to do on this hot day is make its surface area as big as possible, stay as still as possible. It was in a shady spot on my porch. Um, it didn't even care that I was there with my big camera taking a picture of it when normally it would run away if I opened the porch door to step out. So it's an extremely motivated squirrel. And I think it's a great metaphor of how uh, we think about motivation for our learners, for our clients. It's not that they're not motivated. It's that they're not, their motivation is not aligned 
there is a state in motivation that psychologists refer to uh, that is a motivation, which is the absence of motivation. It's fairly rare. Um, really, people, uh, it, it's a question of alignment. Uh, and and when you talk about the fact that grownups maybe don't want to play games, right? Clients, it, this is they feel like it's trivializing them. Well, not all games need to feel like games. The truth is that um, many situations we engage in can be defined as a kind of a game. I often like to refer to two designers, uh, Katie Salen uh, Teckenbaugh and Eric Zimmerman, and they wrote one of the handbooks on game design. Uh, this is uh, written back in around 2003. Um, and, and they have a fantastic definition of games that I think is worth sharing. Their definition is that a game is a system in which players engage in artificial conflict defined by rules that results in a quantifiable outcome. Hmm. Well, if you think about the components of that definition, a system, business is a system, right? I mean, they're interlocking components that, uh, that have to work in concert in order to produce a kind of result. Uh, there are players, right? There's the different people engaged in the business transactions or interactions. There's certainly a conflict, right? Uh, it's certain the conflict is, you know, getting people to do the right thing or getting people to use your service or to buy your product. Um, conflicts are not negative, by the way. Conf conflict just means a contest of powers, right, of some kind. So it doesn't always have to be a negative thing, a conflict. It's simply a challenge. Um, rules, well, there's certainly rules and there's a quantifiable outcome often. In school, it might be a grade uh, or a score on a test or some other assessment. In business, it's a sale. Um, right? Or retaining a client or growing your business or who knows, your stock price. So everything I think can be defined as a game. The question is, is it a good game or is it a bad game? Now, I can't speak directly to business. That's not my field. I can speak to school. And uh, I would wager that even though I have limited experience in business, everybody listening to this podcast probably has experience as a learner in school. Yes. And if you think about it, most of the way that school is designed creates negative engagement experiences for learners. So the problem is, uh, is that school is already a kind of a game. It can be defined using all the things in that definition, but it's a terrible game. So the question is, how can we look and learn from well-designed games to make school into a more engaging game? Now, that doesn't mean playing games, right? necessarily. That's one option. It simply means thinking about how people are engaging and how the design that we provided encourages that the, the, the kind of engagement that we want to align the motivation of the learner with the motivation of the teacher. And the same thing is true in business. Now, it's also true that not everybody wants to play the same game. So you might find that your game uh, that you've designed as a simulation for a very particular purpose doesn't suit every client. So the last thing you'd want to do is make everybody play it. It's like step one, play this game. Well, no, maybe that's not where you are as a, as a, in your journey towards success. Uh, it may be more relevant for some people than others. So again, it's, it's really, these are just very, I, I hesitate to call them basic because uh, they're complicated, but, but they really are sort of the basis of any good educational interaction, which is to understand where the learner is coming from to try to connect to their interests um, to recognize that there's going to be variation among learners, that they're not all the same. One of the biggest mistakes we make in education is to design things for the, the average, right? Mm. To sort of think about what the median client is or the median learner. Well, okay, 
that maybe will capture a cluster of learners who are around that average, but you're certainly boring the people who are more advanced and you're certainly losing the people that are a little bit behind. Um, so averages, I think, are the are the enemies of good, good, productive learning environments, no matter what level of learning we're talking about. So, yeah, like you said, averages are not the way to go when it comes to gamified learning, when it comes to gamified consulting. So keeping that in mind that there is really no average or rather we shouldn't be creating for the average. Have you seen any overarching differences between, say, how children react to gamification versus how adults do? And do you perhaps recommend using a different approach to creating games for adults? Well, one thing I'll say is that it depends on what the comparison set is. So if we walk into, say, uh, a middle school math class and say, instead of the worksheets today, would you prefer to play this math game? The answer will be 100% yes. This sounds like I'm contradicting what I just said about variation. But honestly, anything's better than the worksheet, especially because at this point, they're so bored of it. Because by middle school, they've been doing it. It's like the same pattern over and over and over again. That doesn't mean that they all like it equally or that it will benefit them all equally. It's just that's their preference. When we're talking about adults, I, I think people have a pretty good BS meter. So do kids, by the way. So you want to be sure. And for kids also, they're already in a compliance situation, which I don't think is positive, by the way. I think that a lot of what the design of school does is train people to be compliant. Here are the things I want you to do. Be a good girl or a good boy and do them. And the and the people who comply best, they'll they'll be ranked highest and move on the best. This is actually, it's a bigger, different conversation, perhaps. I think it's leading to what's mostly wrong with education today and why we are producing, unfortunately, I think, a whole generation that's not prepared to deal with the complicated problems that we actually are trying to solve these days. Um, but for grownups, they don't operate uh, usually in that same compliance situation. So they need to be convinced that the thing that you're doing is going to be helpful for them and help them solve the problem they've come to you for. Um, and so their, their BS sensors are tuned differently. And you want to make sure that uh, this is why it's important to avoid things that appear like frivolous fun, right? Everything should be serious. Uh, serious fun aligned with the goals that the client has so that they're convinced that you hear them and that you're coming to them where they are. And this is not just, as I said before, this is not the game I make everybody play, right? It's, oh, here's an experience that will help help us get on the same page or help you see an aspect of this kind of, uh, this kind of business scenario that, uh, that I think will be good, that you will find useful. Right. So it's it's framing things in that way as opposed to um, one size fits all or I think you'll enjoy this because I didn't come here to have a good time. Right. I came here to succeed. Uh, and that's, I think, an important frame to have. Absolutely. And uh, I like how you mentioned that we do not want to go absolute frivolous route when it comes to gamification or gamified engagement with adults. Having said that, one of the things which works really well for the S4 HANA virtual board game, which a part of me finds counterintuitive, but a part of me actually gets it as well, is that we use superhero personas to enable the business discussion. So you could be Batman talking about advanced available to promise, for example. And this somehow works. And so what is it about, say, identity play or fantasy that adds to a gamified experience? 
Well, that's a great example, actually, of uh, what in if, if we're thinking of what the game element is there that you're bringing into the experience, it's avatars. And a very useful feature of an avatar is it allows me to externalize my ego, um, to get out of my own headspace. So if I'm playing a game as Barry Fishman, then there's a whole lot of Barry Fishman wrapped up in the character, no matter what I do. You know, in most games we assume a different character so think of dungeons and dragons or think you know or or your simulation game where you assume a superhero role that allows me to to not feel so personally wrapped up in what i would do now i can do what this character would do people get really wrapped up in their character in the game in uh in in game design theory uh jim g who's really sort of the spiritual father of the rethinking of games and education movement uh, he talks about what he calls a three-part or tripartite identity. There's you, the player of the game. There's the character in the game. And there's a blend between the two because you can't help but bring some of yourself to that experience. But the it's that externalization that really frees us to experiment and to not, not take things so personally, say. Um, and it's a very, you know, it's a common tactic in a lot of a lot of interaction design is to get get you out of your own headspace. So I think it's a great a great thing to do in your game too. I would, you know, again, I would I would examine whether using generic characters or characters people don't recognize might be equally or more productive than using hmm. characters people recognize. Uh, but but you've you've landed on this notion of externalization, which is really powerful. And speaking of you know engagement, we mentioned how. Uh, gamification approach for adults can be different as opposed to kids. Another question that is related is, are there any generational trends? For instance, Gen Z, which is coming up, they are digital natives. Me being a millennial, I have seen both sides and perhaps other generations, they would approach it differently. What do you think about that? Well, I'm, I, I, I agree that there are differences and people sort of have changed a bit over time with different tool availability and what they're used to. Um, I think the, the basics of good design though, go back as far as we care to look. And really what we're thinking about is the way people are able to engage or with what they're comfortable doing more so than that it's a, a good or bad thing for a particular generation. So that that's my take on that. It's not that you know, a teenager is different than someone in their 60s or 70s as far as what good engagement design is. It's just that there may be different things that they'll grasp faster or be more comfortable doing uh, that, you know, that I've, I, I've observed as a teacher, uh, people less able to read for extended periods of time. You know, I, I, it's harder for me to get my students to read a bunch of articles uh, for class. Um, so that may be a function of them getting used to receiving material sort of in more choppy ways that modern media and social media is encouraging. I'm not going to comment on whether that's a good thing or not. Actually, I will. I think it's a terrible thing. But, um, you know, somebody who's older may be used to reading longer form things. Uh, and so they're more comfortable with that. You know, uh, if there's different interaction modalities. So we're moving into a uh, into virtual and augmented reality is really going to start to enter the marketplace and be used for all kinds of interactions. Um, it could be that somebody who has spent more time in an environment like uh, like a first-person video game is going to more naturally pick up um, that style of interaction. So I'd be that's how I'm thinking about the generational differences. Is more just where people's comfort level is with things and what what references they get and so forth, uh, as opposed to um, 
a true difference. And, and I mean, our perceptual systems are our perceptual systems, right? Um, humans, humans evolve, certainly, but uh, not quite as rapidly as one generation to the next uh, that as people talk about. Right. So Barry, today we touched on how gamified approaches are effective in business. Another aspect of gamification that I'm currently seeing is more and more professional learning uses badges. Like I myself have two certifications from SAP, which show up as badges on my LinkedIn. And that's a proof that I have that skill. I have completed that coursework. What do you think is the future of this trend? What are the benefits of this? Maybe pros, cons? Yeah, well, badges, again, are another example of a thing that isn't particularly new. I mean, think about scouting. Um, think about guild certification going way back, right? And it wasn't uh, a digital badge, certainly, but there were there were marks that you would have and display maybe in your place of business that made it clear to people that you had certain qualifications, that, that the guild masters had certified you as being good at a particular set of things or ready to take on a certain set of challenges. Um, Digital badges, badges as a certification for learning and skill development, uh, they're just another form of transcript. And it's important to recognize that badges are not assessments, right? Badges are markers of achievement of some kind. And um, I think people sometimes get confused between the two, but it, they, they're going to play a more and more significant role in learning at all levels, I think. But in order for them to be most valued, where we need to shift our mindset a little bit from a, a, a certification approach. Well, there, there's right now, there's sort of a broad certification idea, which we often bundle uh, into degrees. So we might look at somebody with an MBA and say, uh, that's a, cer a certification of something, but we're, we've lost touch with what all those details are underneath that. We know it, they, they're somehow have more education in business than somebody who has maybe a degree in something else. I mean, we, we think these are all these are all assumptions we make. We right. might look at the place they got the MBA from and have a certain internalized sense of these places are better than those places. So I'm gonna prefer, prefer the people from the higher ranked places. None of these I think are particularly um, productive tools for helping advance say equity or access, right? They're actually the opposite. So one of the nice things about badges or certifications that are tied to specific skills is that they start to decompose some of those more uh, assumption-laden kinds of certificates we have, like degrees, and really say, well, what can this person do? Oh, well, here's a certificate. I, I do want to check and make sure the certificate was awarded by somebody that I think is a, a valid, a good validator of these skills. Um, but if I trust that, then uh, it gives me a much more um, high detail, sort of fine-grained image of what a particular person can do by looking at the collection of certificates they have. And we often talk about certificates or badges being stackable. When people talk about, when, when they use that kind of language, what they mean is that uh, it's not just a collection of things, but it's actually a collection of things that leads to something like a degree. But unlike the degree, we aren't hiding all of those, all the details, we aren't removing resolution from our understanding of what the person can actually do. So I expect these bad systems to really take off. And my hope is that they will um, help democratize access to opportunity for people. Um, and 
that maybe that's the opportunity to go to a college or to go to a grad school. Maybe it's the opportunity to recruit a client or a customer because that client or customer can look at your badges and decide that you have the kinds of skills that we, that they want to help them work on their problems, their challenges. So I think they, they, they work both ways. Note that there are things we need to realize this idea though, which is uh, infrastructure, right? We need uh, the tools to, uh, and they need to be relatively uniform. Like yes. if we if we develop dozens of different systems, we're, we're sort of just recreating a problem of, of people not knowing how to access things or not knowing how to make sense of systems across different different platforms. But you know, the infrastructure should be one that helps us um, gather, uh, verify, and represent our certifications for the different needs that we have for them, whether that's an application to something or to recruit people to come choose us as, uh, as their consultant or to use us to provide the service they're looking for. I mean, these are all ways that I think badges can be quite productive uh, and really help to advance things. It, there's a lot of um, rust we have to shake out of the system right. uh, to make this true. And one of the things, one of the elements that I'm working on in my own scholarship is helping build new kinds of transcripting systems that look more like um, mastery or goal-based or accomplishment-based um, or sometimes we use terms like uh, like what uh, capability-based uh, measures of what people can truly do as opposed to the low resolution transcript or GPA right now. Wow. So Barry, you just mentioned um, the projects that you've been working on. So where can our audiences find you? Where can they follow your work? Well, if if you Google Barry Fishman and Michigan, I'm, I will appear magically with links to some different homepages and web pages. And hopefully in the show notes, you can put some direct links to some of the work we've been doing. Uh, one, uh, a key uh, sort of centerpiece of a lot of the work is something called uh, Gradecraft and Gameful Learning. And Gradecraft is, a, is part of that infrastructure challenge. So it is a kind of learning management system. We designed it originally for college, but it's been, we've been finding people uh, in uh, in middle school and high school interested in this, even elementary school. We've also been finding organizations, so guilds or professional societies interested in using this as a tool to help guide their uh, membership or their learners at various levels toward uh, a more nuanced kind of learning goal than you would get from just a straight up A, B, C, D kind of grading system. Absolutely, thank you for all of that, Barry. I would be entering all of the links in the description below, as well as a link to the S4 game if you are interested in checking that out. With that, Barry, this was a wonderful discussion. I can still not get over uh, the concept of airline points being a game. I would keep thinking about that as well as a sleepy squirrel. So we learned a lot today about gameful learning, about how games can be utilized in learning as well as business consulting and how fantasy and identity can add to a game's experience. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us, Barry. The pleasure was mine. Thank you for having me. And I hope some of these ideas are useful to the, the listeners uh, of your podcast and they are able to go out and help make the world into a slightly better game. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. <laughs>